Good morning. If you have your Bible apps or your Bibles, go with me to Mark uh, chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 38. Mark 12, 38, if you have your Bible apps or your Bibles. I don't know about you, and I hope this is true for you, but I just had a great Christmas, just uh, spent time with my family, and I hope, hope you all had a great Christmas as well. And, and Brooke and I are just so, we're so fortunate, we're so blessed. I, we, we've got two boys right now who drive us crazy, and we love more than anything in the world, and Ethan is uh, two, and Dean is two months, and yeah, we're crazy, we know. But Christmas was just a lot of fun, and and Ethan is really starting to kind of understand everything now about opening presents and opening gifts. And he's getting really excited about it. And this is the first time in his life that he really liked to unwrap presents. And so on Christmas Eve, we were over and he saw his Uncle TJ. He got a couple gifts and he opened those for his Uncle TJ. And when he found out that they were cologne and a watch, he literally threw them across the room because there was nothing of interest to him. And so we're still working on aspects of that. But in our, in our attempt to, to, teach our, to teach our children, we want to teach them that Christmas is more about gifts, and it's more about great food, and it's more about time with family, and it's more about seeing Daddy and his exquisite collection of onesies. Christmas is about so much more than all of those wonderful things. And so our approach to that this year, to teach them the true meaning of Christmas, that we celebrate the birth of, of Jesus, was we have an, an Advent calendar. And so on each day, he would get to open up uh, whatever day of December it was. It would correspond with, with one of the boxes on this calendar. And then we would tell him a little bit about the Christmas story. We would tell him a little bit about the angels or the star that God provided or Joseph or Mary or Jesus or the shepherds, etc. Or the animals, whatever it happened to be that day. And we would, we would do this trying to teach him about the true meaning of Christmas and trying to teach him... Of, of, of why we celebrate. And so we were, we, last Monday, I, I decided that I was going to walk through the, the Advent calendar with our son Ethan, and so I pulled it off the bookshelf where it, normally, where it normally sits so he can't reach it. And so he got, we got the calendar down to the floor, and, and we started talking, and it just so happened that Monday was the 22nd, and so it was the, the third Magi that's, that's pictured there. And so we were talking about how God provided a star, and these really wise men listened to prophecy, and, and they journeyed long and far to see Jesus, and we did this on a two-year-old level, so it was a lot more simple and a lot shorter than that. And so we got to the end of the story of, about, about the Magi, and, and then he, he opened it up when I showed him which one, and he said, no, 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 broken, broken, broken. And, and the frustration was immediately evident on the face of, of my two-year-old son and the frustration of, I've got something to tell you, but I can't fully tell you what I want to tell you because I'm two and my vocabulary hasn't developed that far yet. But, but I'm looking at the calendar and I'm like, it, it's not broken. The, the door works just fine. All the pieces are still in place. What's wrong? And then he reaches his hand inside and all of a sudden I remembered one key component of what I was supposed to do before I launched into the story of the Magi. And that was to put a couple pieces of the fruit snacks into the slot so that when my son opened the slot, there was some sort of reward instead of just an empty slot, which if that happened repeatedly would quickly make this absolutely no fun and he would lose interest. I forgot to put what mattered most to Ethan on the inside. 
And that was the delicious fruit snacks. And this isn't a commercial, but I'm telling you, as far as fruit snacks are concerned, these Mott's are out of the world. They're great. I can understand. I can understand his frustration. I can understand just his, his just wanting to get my attention and tell me, no, something's wrong. Something is broken. And everything, exterior, everything on the exterior was great. But the interior was missing something. And that was the most important part to our son. And this morning as we look at Mark chapter 12, what we're going to see is a lot of times, religious people, people just in general, it doesn't matter whether you're religious or not, just people in a society, in a civilization, they've got the exterior down pretty well. But the interior is what matters the most. The interior is what matters the most to Jesus. And I want you to know, this isn't a new problem. This isn't a new problem that civilization and that people face, that religious people struggle with. This is a problem that, that was very prevalent in Jesus' times as well. And he spoke frequently about it. So this morning we're going to look at one of those instances in Mark chapter 12. Now, Mark 12 is just an incredible chapter of Scripture, and it starts with Jesus telling a parable about people not listening to prophets, and ultimately he was foreshadowing his own death, which we're going to look in depth over the next couple weeks. We're going to see just, just in depth the, the sacrifice that Christ paid on our behalf. And, and then he starts talking about how people should interact with their government. And then he's questioned about the resurrection, as a certain segment of people didn't believe that it was possible. And then Jesus gets to the, the question from the scribes, which Mitch read earlier. And in that response, we hear the, what's typically called the greatest commandment. And that's to love the Lord your God and to love others with all your heart. So we get to Mark 12, 38. And we know that there's a great crowd assembled because of of verse 37, and, and in verse 38 we pick up, here's what we find, and in his teaching Jesus said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. Now Jesus starts here with a warning. He starts his remarks with a warning and he says, beware, beware, be on guard. Jesus is letting, letting the audience know there is danger here. There is danger here. He's just encountered scribes. They're the ones who asked him about the greatest commandment. They are present in this great crowd. And he's calling them out. And he's saying, beware of the scribes. Now, here's what you need to know about the scribes. And this is a great foundational thing. And upon this, we're going to build the rest of this morning. But scribes were mostly Pharisees. That is, they were really big on the law and tradition. They were very big on law and tradition. They wanted to follow everything according to the letter of the law. These were legal experts, and they were in some senses essentially the lawyers of Israel in religious and social matters. That is the scribes. The scribes predominantly came from that 
that group, the Pharisees. The Pharisees of the day religiously were very conservative. The Sadducees of the day were very liberal. So out of the conservative group, the Pharisees came the scribes. They handled legal matters for the people, but they did so in ways that incorporated spirituality. And they would convey their interpretation as if it were the will of God. All right, I know that's a mouthful, but just understand that is the context of what we're talking about. There is a group who is religiously very conservative. They are Pharisees. Out of that group comes the scribes who are essentially the lawyers of the day. That is the group that Jesus is talking about. That is the group that Jesus is saying, beware. Beware. Because they like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. And have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. They devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. They walked around in long robes. Now, Numbers 15, which is a book in the Old Testament, you don't have to turn there. But Numbers 15 gives us the parameters of how Jews were supposed to dress. They were to have, they were to have robes and they would have blue tassels on the bottoms of their robes. Now, as, as time went on, these tassels grew in, in how big they were and how large they were. And it became an outward appearance. And it was a contest. And it became, look at what I can do. Look at how spiritual I am. My tassel's this big. And it just became a contest. And it became, it became a situation where here, it was all about getting attention. It was all about the pretense of, I am spiritual. Look at me. I'm spiritual. And this is my way of proving it. Look at how good I look. Look at how I dress. My dress is communicating to you the fact that I am really spiritual. I am really close to God. And Jesus says, beware of that. Beware of it. We like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace. They want to greet it in the marketplace. Now, it's not like these are just extroverts. Jesus isn't talking about just people who are extroverts and like to see a bunch of people and talk to them. I, I know some people that are like that. You're in a social setting, and it's your goal by the end of the night to walk around to every single person that's also in the social setting to introduce yourself and, and just have a conversation with the person. Just know you're okay. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus isn't strictly saying, ah, oh, they're extroverts, so there's something wrong with them. They're attention seekers, and they're evil. That's not the point of what Jesus is saying here. The point of what Jesus is saying here when he talks about being greeted in the marketplace is they want attention, they want to be noticed, but they want attention, they want to be noticed not because of who they are, but because of their position. Because of their position. It'd be similar to being at a party and, and if, if somebody were a very successful businessman, making sure that they introduce themselves each time as CEO. Or it'd be, it'd be akin to a doctor walking around and making sure that everyone in the, in the facility knew that they were doctor so-and-so. Or it'd be, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a pastor. Maybe you're like, you can call me reverend. You know, something along those lines where all of a sudden your title is more important than who you are as a person. And the scribes found all of their self-worth in their title, in their job. And so when, when Jesus throws out the disclaimer about being greeted in the marketplace, it's not that they were extroverts. It's not that they just wanted to talk to people. It's that they were utilizing their position to, to cast themselves in a level of importance. In a level of importance. 
It says be on guard. Be on guard. Like greetings in the marketplaces. And have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. The best seats. Here what Jesus is talking about the scribes is they elevated themselves. They elevated themselves. The seats in the synagogue nearest the that were nearest to the sacred scrolls. This was an area that was reserved for leaders and people of renown, people who had resources, people who were well-known. The best seats in the synagogues, those that were near the scrolls, were reserved for these people. It's all a positional thing. It's all a positional thing. And they are flaunting their position. They are flaunting that which they have achieved in their mind based on how they appear, based on their role, and based on where they are placed. Who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Now remember, the scribes were essentially the lawyers. They were put in place, supposedly, to protect the people. But instead of protecting the people, the scribes were destroying them. The scribes often served as estate planners for widows, just as you would go to a lawyer to have a will drawn up for yourself or a trust. And if you haven't done that, I highly encourage you, go see, go see an attorney that you trust, get, get a will in place. You never know when you're going to meet Jesus, and it just makes things easier on your family and and your loved ones. So if you haven't done that yet, even if you're young, take the time, go see a lawyer, get your will in place, get your affairs in order, because you might meet Jesus later today. You never know. And so the scribes, they served as the estate planners, for, the, for widows especially, and this gave them the opportunity to convince distraught and grieving widows that they would best be serving God. They would best be serving God if they took their assets and they sold their assets and they gave that money to the scribes and to the temple. In either case, whether it was to the scribe or to the temple, the scribe was the financial benefactor and effectively robbed the widow of what her husband had left for her in her inheritance. These are the scribes. And how do they present themselves? They present themselves in clothes. They present themselves in, in, in just their position. They present themselves in where they sit. They present themselves as helpful. And they present themselves as spiritual. They utter long prayers for pretense. They cry out to God, but their crying out to God is not out of some sort of spiritual longing for God. Their cries to God are not indicative of what's going on inside of them, of a vibrant relationship with God. Their cries out to God are empty and hollow, and they're utilized to impress other people. That was the purpose of their prayer. The purpose of their prayer was to gain attention from others. It was not a heart that wanted to be like God. It was seen as an opportunity to advance their agenda. And on the exterior, everything here is great. I mean, think about it. 
Here are people who are following the mandates of Numbers 15. Here are people who are wearing the tassels on their robes. Here are people who have achieved a level, a, a certain office, and, and they're going around. Here are people who are sitting close to the sacred scrolls. Here are people who are helping widows. Here are people who cry out to God, and the whole time it's a fraud. Their motive is not holiness. Their motive is not to become like God. Their motive is deception. And God says judgment is coming. Now, how does this apply to us? Because Jesus has come, we're under grace, the Pharisees and the Sadducees doesn't really apply to us. How, how, does this, how does this apply to us? How can we make this relevant in our lives? And here's a question I want you to ask yourself. When it comes to leveraging your influence, are you worried about personal gain? Or are you worried about God's fame? When it comes to you leveraging the influence that God has given you with the people you oversee at work, with the friends that you have, with your children, with people who respect you, are you leveraging your influence for personal gain or are you leveraging your influence for God's fame? See, this is a hard issue. And what's happening with the scribes goes directly back to the passage of Scripture that Mitch read. What does God want for us? First and foremost, to love Him. And secondly, to love one another. That is what God wants from us. And what you see here is neither of which were happening. They were leveraging their influence for their own personal gain. To be benefited financially, to be given a place of honor, to gain prestige, but not for God's fame, not to help people in their spiritual journey, not to bring people closer to God, not to listen to the greatest commandment, to love God first and foremost, and then to love others. And so the question that each of us has to ask ourselves is, are we leveraging our influence for us, for our personal gain, or are we leveraging our influence for God's fame? And so Jesus throws out this warning on the scribes. And then he introduces a contrast. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, 
has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. So here's the contrast. Jesus, in talking about the scribes, introduces the Pharisee at the tail end of his, introduces the widow, excuse me, at the tail end of his warning. He says the scribes take her home and they, they devour her. And now the contrast is clear that as Jesus is watching the treasury and watching people putting their offering into the boxes, many rich people put in large sums. Now, be very careful and notice this, that nowhere here, nowhere here does Jesus condemn the gift of the rich. It's not condemned. Jesus does not condemn the, rich, the gift of the rich here. Jesus does not condemn wealth. There, there is an attack right now on wealth from some segments of our society, but understand, there biblically is nothing wrong with wealth. Jesus does not condemn the rich here. He's merely providing the contrast when he mentions their gift. And before we go any further, let me just say this. As our year wraps up to an end here, I just want to express my appreciation. To you. Because when you give to Mission View, you, you enable us to do incredible works. You enable us to do orphanages to, for girls who might otherwise be in the sex trade. You enable us to partner with churches in Turkey. You enable us to partner with churches in Mexico like we just prayed about. You enable us to, to minister to people right here in North Canton. And we love doing that. But when you give to Mission View, you also enable me to eat. And, and I, I'm not kidding. And I appreciate that. And my wife and my family and I, and I know everybody on, on, on the staff feels this way, we are so incredibly blessed to, to, be, a part of, to be a part of this team. And, and, and we're so incredibly blessed that you have enough confidence in us to entrust us with your hard-earned money to entrust our stewardship and our integrity. And in the process, you allow me to feed my family and do what I love and do what I believe I was born and gifted to do. And so I am just so thankful for you for enabling us to do that full-time so that we don't have to worry about other things. And, and believe me, if, if we had to do other things, we, we would still do other things and we would still be here. But the privilege we have of focusing all our time and all of our attention on this, it's just, we, we so appreciate it. And so I just want to say thank you to those of you who, who give and, and just make this a possibility for me, and, and I, it just means the world to me. So, so thank you. But, but understand here, Jesus is not condemning the, the gift of the rich. He's merely setting up the contrast. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Think about this. I mean, not spiritually. Think about this pragmatically. We love to think about this spiritually, and we're like, go widow. But think about this pragmatically. She put in two coins which, which equal a penny, which is essentially, in terms of just strictly monetarily, it's essentially worthless. Think about this. A recent article in Forbes stated, the U.S. Mint is finding it harder to be penny-wise as the metal used to make the coins gets more costly. 
The price of zinc, which makes up most of the cent piece, posted the biggest gain since 2009 in the first eight months of this year as global demand from fabricators exceeds mine output. The squeeze comes as the mint boosts production by 14% to 7.5 billion pennies this year, which will require more than 18,000 metric tons of zinc. There's more than just the cost of the metal, of course, but the cost of making a penny that's worth one cent is right now around 1.6 cents, leading to losses over the year of some $55 million just from the process of making pennies. It costs more to make the penny than the penny is worth by 1.6 times. That is how worthless pennies are. I don't know if you're like me, but there are times I see a penny on a sidewalk or in a parking lot and I don't even bother to, to bend down and pick it up. It's just worthless. It's, it's more annoying to have the pennies around. And Jesus draws the attention to this widow. She puts two coins in the box, which equals one penny, which is essentially worthless monetarily. But here's what you need to understand. As Jesus, as Jesus says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had all she had to live on. Here's what you need to know. God's economy operates differently than the economy we're used to. And in God's economy, her two coins, which equaled a penny, were more of a gift than what the rich contributed. How can that be? How can something that is seemingly worthless be more? Because in God's economy, the greatest concern is the heart behind our giving, not the size of the gift. In God's economy, the greatest concern is the heart behind the gift not the size of the gift. So, in practice, two people who both make $50,000 and one who begrudgingly gives 5,000 bucks, 't give as much as someone who cheerfully gives two thousand dollars who's hard pressed and they just give everything they can collectively scrounge up to give and in our economy we would say five thousand is always greater than two thousand and in God's economy he says two coins that are worth a cent is a greater gift than hundreds or thousands of dollars Because of the heart behind the gift. God's greatest concern is the heart. And this isn't just in giving. It's in everything. We have the contrast here of the scribes 
and the widow. And yet, here's what's so difficult when we talk about the heart. It's impossible to know the motives of other individuals. It's just impossible. We can talk to the other individual and we can think we understand them. We can watch their life and we can have empirical evidence. But it is impossible for us to know and understand the motive of other individuals. I was reminded of that this week as I, I binged listened to Serial, which was the number one podcast in 2014, and it uncovers a 1999 murder allegedly committed by a 17-year-old, and a, a reporter from NPR goes and uncovers all these facts, and in a 12-week journey, leaves you off no further along, 12 hours later of your life, no further along than you were when you started the stupid journey, because the ultimate conclusion is, we can't know people's motives. That's what's so difficult. Like if we're talking about lying, we're like, tell the truth. There's the solution. If we're talking about stealing, we're like, stop taking things that aren't yours. If we're talking about adultery, stop having sex with people that aren't your spouse. Those are very clear cut. Those are very simple solutions. It's more difficult because we're talking about the heart. And as we've seen from the scribes, the exterior means nothing. It's all about the interior. It's all about the heart. So how do we put this into practice? What do we do? On Wednesday night or on Thursday of this week, people are going to make a number of goals. They're going to make goals to eat better, to go to the gym. I mean, gyms make all of their money in January. They just can't wait until Thursday and Friday roll around. If you're a gym owner, you are so excited. This week is your Christmas. People are, people are just so excited. And, and people make goals. A lot of people make resolutions of, of all kinds. And, and in the past, you've You've heard me encourage what Jim Collins encouraged as well, which I think is just great. Not only in making goals to make goals of that which you want to accomplish, but also make goals of that which you no longer want to do. The stop doing goals. The things that you need to stop as well as the things you need to start. And so putting those into place as well. And yet, in terms of what we're talking about today, that also falls short. So there's a third category, that as you plot out your goals, whether you're into New Year's resolutions or whether you think, I have 365 days I can make resolutions, I just, I just want to better myself. I think this third category is the most applicable to us today, and I didn't think it up. It, it's from a guy named Joel Mamby. Joel Mamby is, is currently the president and CEO of Hershen Family Entertainment they're the largest family-owned theme park corporation in the United States. He was featured on an episode of Undercover Boss way back in the first season. And a couple years ago, wrote a great book entitled Love Works. It's all about seven timeless principles for effective leadership. Here's what Joel Manby said in one of the interviews promoting his book, Love Works. For most of my career, I was focused on my do goals, what I wanted to accomplish in my career what level of financial success I wanted to achieve. But I realized that simply accomplishing my do goals did not bring me contentment. 
When I left the auto industry after 20 years and began a new chapter in my life, I created a set of B goals for myself. B goals are all about defining the kind of person I want to be. And I have control over these goals. I can be a good husband, father, and friend, while at the same time being a good leader. I give my B goals the same priority as my do goals. Just as I set aside time to accomplish my do goals, I also set aside to accomplish my B goals. Now my do goals and my B goals are in alignment, and I have contentment like never before. And so that's our challenge. Because what matters most to God is our heart. So it's not enough for us as we sit down and as we craft goals for ourselves to craft goals that we want to do and goals that we don't want to do. We need to craft goals that say who we want to be. Because that forces us to look at the interior. It forces us to look at the heart. And that's what it's all about. So as you're looking forward, your do goals and your stop doing goals, and now your B goals, ask yourself, am I leveraging my influence for personal gain or for God's fame? Am I giving from my heart? Because in God's economy, that's the greatest gift. Who do you want to be? The answer for me is not a scribe, not somebody who tries to, tries to have everything together externally. But someone who follows the greatest commandment, who loves God, loves people. And that will allow me to leverage my influence for God's fame. And that will allow me to give from the heart. The gift that God is honored by. God, I pray that we would be people who are focused on the interior. I pray that we would search ourselves right now. And we would figure out who we want to be. And God, I pray the answer to that question would come from your greatest commandment. That we would first and foremost love you. And then we would love others passionately. God, may our hearts be in line with that. May our lives bring you honor and glory. And may you accomplish much through us and through our influence for your fame. In your son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen.